Well, today is Father's Day. Father's Day was a late bloomer as far as our holidays or days of emphasis. We actually are in the neighborhood of the lady that started the concept of Father's Day. She lived in Spokane, Washington. Back in 1909, she attended a church service for Mother's Day and thought then about the need for having some recognition and observance of Father's Day. And so she was able the next year to get a Father's Day observance on a small local level. It was established then in 1910. It became uh, recognized by many states and different groups of people, the observance of Father's Day. Uh, 1910 was a good day for a good year for Father's Day to start being observed because that's the year my father was born. And uh, I can go back and identify with that. But it wasn't until 1966 that there was a proclamation by one of our presidents uh, in order to recognize uh, fathers on a special day. That was um, Lyndon Johnson, um, part of his great society uh, introductions of things that he was involved in. But it wasn't until 1972 that Congress set aside this date for Father's Day to be observed, a recognition of fathers. I have an idea that uh, if our civilization holds together much longer, uh, there'll be a departure from it and we'll no longer observe Father's Day I'm not sure how they're going to replace that, but Mother's Day is being replaced by birthing person. And uh, so we can see uh, there's certainly a movement in that direction. Probably one of the slowness uh, of getting a foothold in observing Father's Day, uh, I noted in the little text that I sent out last night. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 23 verse 9, Call no man on earth your father. And yet, here we are assembled together today in our regular church time and time of worship and study of the Word and identifying it and relating it to Father's Day. I'll not go into my story. You have heard, probably all of you have heard it three or four times about my encounter with a Catholic priest who wanted me to call him Father but uh, <clears throat> I quoted him this passage that says, Call no man or your father. And yet in the Scriptures itself, the Apostle Paul and others uh, identify the role of the Father and talk about our being fathers. It was Jesus Himself who said in Matthew 23, 9, Call no man on earth your father. And if you look at the context in which that was taking place. It was a title and the association that the Jews had developed uh, with God uh, was one that was related primarily to ritual and the performance and observance of various days and things without any real personal communication and contact with God. Asked them who their father was. It was Father Abraham. And they went back in all of their heritage to Abraham, to Abraham, to Abraham. Not to God's covenant with Abraham. Not to God's promise to Abraham. But Abraham. And they had become so focused on that that in their addressing Father Abraham and their heritage, Jesus wanted to take them back a step or two further to the creation and to the recognition that truly God is our Father. He is the originator of life, and uh, with Him we have that. 
And so it was the title that was uh, being attacked. He, uh, Jesus not only addressed fathers, but he uh, used the word rabbi. Don't desire to be called rabbi. Uh, don't desire that you have these titles or to be called master. And don't desire the high seats <clears throat> in the synagogue, but rather recognize that God is your father and he is our creator and we belong to him and our relationships are patterned by him for our heavenly father designed for us five basic divine institutions to which we have referred from time to time that identify the various roles that he has assigned our volition or our free will he has created us in His image in order that we might have free will and be able with our volition to make choices. And then He instituted marriage. And then following marriage, He instituted a family. And then in addition to the family, society. And then in addition to society, the church. Those five structures that God established in order that civilization might have some uh, unity together and we as individuals might be able to live alongside others. Last year as I approached Father's Day, I was challenged by the vicious attack that had generated that uh, was directly directed, first of all, against the distinction of genders. But although I'm a student of the Bible and a student of Bible prophecy and I understand the inevitable degradation of God's divine institutions that He designed for the welfare of the race, even I was not prepared for the rapid, uh, unapologetic, the blatant, in-your-face, demanding recognition and acceptance of their perversions and of the seeming success that has generated in this past year alone that would be a threat upon the preservation of society, the preservation of the family, the preservation of marriage, and the preservation even of our free will as we've seen that under attack so viciously in the last couple of years. And so as a result of that, no Father's Day of the past is as important as the one that we are observing today. Because never have the divine institutions of volition and marriage and family and society been in such jeopardy as they are Today, there was a time when the church could have turned this nation around, but alas, the church has been so infiltrated by wokeism and by the the processes uh, that the attack has taken upon our society and joined forces with the forces of evil that the church I no longer see as the avenue for reversing the circumstance, but it becomes more individual, it becomes more personalized. It comes down to the family. It comes down to one family at a time. If we're going to develop a counterculture to the perversions that are so prevalent in our society today, it will not occur in the Laodicean church. The church has certainly lost its way, abandoned its course. If a counterculture is to be developed, it has to begin one man at a time, one family at a time, one household at a time as we focus upon our responsibility and our relationship to God, not try to change the world, but to structure our lives individually and therefore then collectively in line with the Word of God. 
During the time of the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Ezekiel, Israel had reached the same kind of circumstance and culture that we have today. Israel had become perverse much like what we see in America today. And God sought for a man. The scripture says, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I would not destroy it, but I found none. The focus in our society today is on America. God's looking for men to step up and to live out the designated role as husband and as fathers. And it must begin one family at a time. God's not looking for men to become kings in their own castles, but He's looking for godly governors, men that will be godly husbands and godly fathers adhering to the original design that God has revealed for us in His Word concerning the man and his role as God set it up. It's a fancy-sounding title to be king in one's own palace, but there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it And while our focus is no longer upon man becoming king in his own castle, but upon man's godly design and role as a governor. And as a governor, there is great responsibility that comes with it as well. To be successful, a man today must shake off the accusation of toxic maleness and live out the design that God has revealed for us in His Word. What man is it that doesn't want to be king in his own castle? But the biblical design is more that of a governor than that of a king, and that too comes with the price. God's design for the role of the husband, God's design for the role of the father, requires that man understand the distinction that God made between the two genders. Yes, I put two in capital letters. There are only two genders, no matter how we attempt to distort that. There are only two genders. And so the title of the message today might well have been The Maleness of Fathers. I tried that title on a few people. It didn't seem to fare too well to talk about the maleness of fathers. But failure to understand the distinctions that God has made has resulted in the misunderstanding of God's purpose as He designed these roles. And it explains why marriage and then the family and then society are in such a mess today. The divine design of the Creator of the heavens and the earth included a clear distinction between the two genders. When God created them, He created them male and female. That deliberate design is clearly seen in the biblical account of creation. In Genesis, we have this recorded. In the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her to the man. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image and the likeness of God created he him. Male and female created he them. The distinction that God established between the two genders has been under satanic tact from the very beginning. And we today marvel at how like Sodom and Gomorrah our culture has become today. The attack upon the distinction that God set up began in the early days following creation. And as a matter of fact, we see it in Satan's approach to Eve in the Garden of Eden. And uh, then Adam's capitulation of his authority to hearken to the voice of his wife and to eat of the forbidden fruit in direct disobedience to God. We see it in the angelic conflict and again in the act of Noah's son Ham following the flood after God had spared them a homosexual act committed by the son upon the father in just a short period of time following the destruction of this earth and the establishment of a new earth. We saw it magnified in the generation of gender distinction here in the United States. It really began to be prominent in the 60s. You may remember it began with the fashion world and it culminated with the flower children and the so-called love generation with its immorality and with its degeneration then of the family structure. And now it's everywhere in politics, in corporate America, in the schools, and in the Laodicean church as well. Satan's objective has been the destruction of distinction in genders in order to destroy the social order that God established through the divine institution of marriage and family. If you can destroy the distinction between the genders, the distinction of the family order then follows where the president says they're not your children, they're our children. All of them are our children. They belong to the government. The structure of our social society then is eliminated and anarchy and immorality define the culture of society. And so with that said, while one might want to be king in his own castle, let's examine this morning why it's so hard for men to be the head of the home, let alone a governor in his own domain, in a nutshell, is because in our pursuit, we've confused the roles with value. And we blurred the divine distinction between the genders. And now the catchword is equality. No, not equality anymore. Today it's equity. Equity demands not that we all have the same rights, but that we all have the same outcome we all end up with the same things. So look with me this morning briefly at creation. One of the major mistakes that we see in society today is presuming that the creation of male and female was simply for propagation. Certainly, that's one of its endeavors, but it's not the only aspect of our roles. The idea served as a foundation of the distinction and its destruction between the two and resulted in the breakdown of our families and in our social order. God established without understanding the roles For the male and the female in society, society becomes disoriented and individuals began to assume roles for which they were not designed. That results in the 
disruption of the basic structure of marriage, of family, and of society. It's almost impossible, I have found in my personal endeavor, to keep people from confusing roles with value. A major contributor to that near impossibility is the teaching of evolution instead of creation. See, if we simply evolved, then the gender distinctions are only biological and culture then can designate new roles and design. But if we were created in the image of God, then the distinctions were determined by the Creator. And those distinctions, according to Him, were assigned in specific roles in conformity to our gender, and they have nothing to do with the value of the individual or the value of the roles. At the creation account that's given in the Word of God, we are given the ability to understand then the maleness that is required of fathers. Some quick observations that we might note about our review of creation. Male and female, the Scripture says, God created them. God created them at the same time to identify and relate to the value of both man and woman. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, Moses wrote this on the direction of God. So God created man in his own image. In the, in the likeness of God created he him. Male and female created he them. I made the statement that God created them at the same time. That could cause perhaps a little confusion if we simply read the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. So let me explain briefly. Chapter 1 of Genesis is an introduction to creation. And then in chapter 2, it's a parenthesis that is the writer goes back to explain what in detail occurred in chapter 1. And so, in verse, in chapter 2, verse 7, we have this statement. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Yet Eve did not make an appearance until chapter 2, verse 21. After the details are given concerning getting Adam situated in his new home, the Garden of Eden, and after he had named all the critters, so then in chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, we have this. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. How then do I say they were created at the same time? The answer is found in the Hebrew in the Old Testament as it records the creation. There are three Hebrew words that are used in the creative account. The word bara, translated created, and it means to bring into existence out of nothing. Asa is translated made, and it means to manufacture out of existing material. And yatser, translated formed, means to form or fashion as a potter would a piece of clay and identifies the structure of the body. So all three of these words are used in the creation. 
as identified in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, which says, For thus saith the Lord God that created, that's the word bara, the heavens, God himself that formed, that's Yatser, the earth, and made, that's Asa, made it, he hath established, the word there is kun, given it order, he created it, bara, it is not in vain, he formed it, Yatser, it is to be inhabited. When God formed man, the word is Yatser, means to form or fashion as a putter does a piece of clay. My wife brought a dog home one time from the grocery store. I didn't know they were selling dogs at grocery stores. But I found out she she had gotten it from some people that were outside the store, had a box full of puppies, and she brought one home. She said his name is Sandy. Isn't he cute? Well, he was the ugliest thing I had ever seen. He was albino. He had... He was white all over except his tail was almost slick and he had pink eyes and a pink nose. I said his name shall be called Yatser. She said Greek or Hebrew. I said Hebrew. What's it mean? It means to form or fashion as a potter would a piece of clay. Maybe we can fashion this thing into a dog. Maybe. So his name was Yatser and he became a dust mop. He was one of those lossy opsos with long hair that drooped down everywhere. But uh, I'm not sure whether we actually achieved our objective in Yatsering him into what we desired. But that's the word to form or fashion and refers to the structure of man. When God created man, he formed him out of the dust of the ground. He then manufactured the organs of man out of existing material. That's the word asa. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Soul, actually it's plural in the Hebrew. Soul life and spirit life. That's bara. And when he made Eve, none of those words are used. Because he had already performed all of that in the rib that was in the side of Adam. God took one of Adam's ribs. Actually, it wasn't one of Adam's ribs. It was the rib that God had put there to form woman with because the word rib is feminine. That very masculine body that God formed and fashioned for the first man There was a feminine rib that was placed there. The DNA for the woman was in that rib by God's design that included uh, the creation of the woman at the time of the man, though her form and shape had not yet been defined. The DNA in that rib was what God used in order to bring woman being created at the same time as Adam, but yet at the appropriate time by God's design to be brought forth. There were now two in society as God brought them about. Two things stand out by the fact that God created them both at the same time. First of all, we would recognize that woman was not an afterthought. She was in the original design of God. And not as some feminist I have heard today say that God had to create woman and finally get it right after making such a mess with man. There was a completion of man that was being used in this design. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 8, Paul wrote, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman 
for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Power that is a covering in sign that she's under the authority of the husband. Nevertheless, is the man without the woman, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. So God formed them differently, and not just for propagation, but to form a team to commission them distinctly. The woman was made for the man, so he is incomplete without her. She's designed to assist him in the role that God has set up. She's female, a responder, and he is an initiator. They are each body and soul. And though through the new birth they have the addition of a human spirit, and that's affirmed by the Apostle Paul as he writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet he is male and she is female. The majority of people believe that the distinction of gender was for the propagation of the human race. But you see, God had a far greater design in mind. The distinction of the genders has a greater role than just that of propagation of the human race. The distinction is designed for the welfare of our social order. But this is Father's Day, so let's keep our focus and examine then the maleness of the fathers. In the Bible, when a word is masculine, it identifies an initiation or initiator or the initiated. If the word is feminine, it identifies a responder or a response. Now, modern Greek grammars no longer deal with gender except simply note there was a time when this was used. It's by satanic design. I would suggest to you that they have abandoned the distinction of the gender in studying the language in order to better understand the Word of God. God did create them male and female because God had a distinct role for each of them and He designed a harmonious society through that structure of those distinctions. Some women today are repulsed by the idea of just being made for the man, not for, and the man not made for the woman, but the idea of maleness has been under attack since the beginning of time, but never has it been attacked like we see it in our society today. Daily on our newscasts, there are visible attacks upon this distinction and certainly the distinction of roles. The first failure of maleness occurred in the Garden of Eden. God put Adam in charge, but Adam capitulated his authority and he allowed the woman to become the initiator. Notice what God said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree. See, Adam was commanded to guard the garden. We miss that in the first sin. Adam's first shortcoming was not to guard the garden. He allowed the serpent to get in. Adam was commanded to subdue the earth. He did not do that, but he became subdued himself. Adam was commanded to have dominion, but he didn't do that either, and he became dominated. Adam was commanded not to eat of the tree, but he did and died twice as a result. Spiritually, the moment he ate of the fruit, and then physically, 
930 years after God had created him. Now we're quick to observe that Adam ate the forbidden fruit, but we miss the impact of the Lord's indictment because you hearkened to the voice of your wife. The maleness of fathers requires that we be the initiators, providing leadership, initiating direction for the family. An Old Testament example of this perversion is seen in the story of Barak in the Old Testament when he denied his maleness and a woman stepped in to the role. Judges chapter 4, beginning at verse 4, And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. We could park there for a while, wonder why she was judging Israel for uh, at that time when God forbids uh, that authority of a woman over a man. But we'll not go there right now. She dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinim, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun, and I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. And Barak said unto her, If thou go with me, I'll go. But if thou will not go with me, then I will not go. I don't see much maleness in that response. <clears throat> you see, God had told Barak to go to battle and that God Himself would deliver the enemy into His hand. But the wimp wouldn't go until the woman Deborah led the way. Israel's enemy was defeated as a result of that battle, but the laurels went to a woman. No, not Deborah that initiated it, went to yet another woman that carried out the instruction. Many a man has neglected his maleness and it would appear that there is always a woman willing to step into that place. Maleness is missing in the male gender, but maleness of fathers is clearly evident in the lack of such, even though God designed it. We can't separate the physical and the soulish and the spiritual design of man from any of the roles that God has appointed him to serve in. We're often quick to marvel at the masterful design of man, and yet we're reticent to interpret that same design for specific roles that God has given. When one examines <clears throat> the biological and the anatomical makeup of the male humo, uh, homo sapien, we can't help but be struck with the uniqueness and the intricate design for the jobs that God has assigned. We observe as well the essence of his soul and his spirit and marvel at his suitability for the roles that God has given in His Word. We must likewise then interpret the suitability of the design for the roles that He is to fill in marriage and in family, in society, and in the church. God has designed man to be the initiator. The development of language has affirmed that. We mentioned especially the Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament, that if a word is masculine, it identifies initiator if the word is feminine, it identifies a response. And if the word is neuter, then initiation or response is not the issue. 
but instrument or means uh, becomes the issue. The Genesis account of creation establishes then man as the head of the woman. This is clearly evident in the garden before the fall as noted. While heavenly hosts witnessed the wonderful scene, Adam declared, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then as God bore witness and the angels listened in awe, Adam pledged his troth. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Before the wall, or the fall of man, these roles were reflexive. Each one of them just naturally did that which they had been designed to do. But the fall resulted in a change of nature itself, and that necessitated the divine structure to be by command rather than by natural impulse. Adam said, or, or God said to Adam, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not have eaten, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, and thou shalt return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Two indictments. Hearkened unto the voice of your wife. The word means to hear and to obey. Shalmah, you have listened to and obeyed the voice of your wife. And the second indictment, you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat. The word commanded is to set forth in clear instruction. There couldn't be any confusion in the instruction that God gave concerning the eating of the fruit of that tree. In the day thou eatest thereof, dying immediately thou shalt die in the future the death of the soul and the, or the death of the spirit and then the death of the soul will occur. Those things cited here then are in conformity with Adam's physical design. Notice that God did not speak this to the woman. He spoke only to Adam concerning this role. Man is the breadwinner. He is designed to do the physical work. God has designed a plan for man for a specific role then in the family as well. God appointed man to be head of the home. In Genesis 3.16, he, he said unto the woman, the Lord said to the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Be careful, guys, with the word rule. It's not that of a monarch or of a dictator. The word radal means to rule by force. That's not what God used here. God used the word moshal. That means to govern. Now, a governor must recognize that he is an equal to all the others in his governance. He simply has a different position than the others. He has no greater value. He has no higher position. He simply maintains a role that God has set forth. And in order to teach that, and in order to create the proper balance that is needed for that, 
Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The word love is from agape. It's a self-sacrificial love that manifests itself in giving and it continues to love regardless of the response. The word's so easy. I love you. The action is so challenging. It requires a lifetime of commitment. This is that kind of love defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 7. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself. Means to elevate oneself over the other, the object loved. It does not vaunt itself. Is not puffed up. Literally, it's not full of hot air. Does not behave unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Strike the word easily. It's not in the Greek text. Is not provoked. I'd rather have the word easily in there. But the scripture says, this kind of love is not provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. This love is compared to the love that Christ had for His church and gave Himself for it. A willingness to give Himself for her protection, for her provision, for her providence. Or I call it. If God's going to give the role of governor, He's going to require a great deal in elevating the object love above self. We are also told in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 that the husband is to render due benevolence to his wife. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3 says, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Due benevolence is translated from the Greek word enoia, which means give her that which he owes her because of her position. Due benevolence, that which he owes her because of his position. The husband owes the wife that which is required by the word of God suffers long and is kind, envieth not itself, vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, is not easily provoked, is not provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. This love never fails. Not only does he owe her due benevolence based on their roles, but he is to teach his wife. 1 Corinthians 14.35 says, And if they will learn anything, speaking of the women, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in church. Now I hear you ladies, how can he teach me when I know more than he does about these things? Hence, the message on Father's Day, fathers, we need to remedy that circumstance and see that we know the Word of God and are applying it and teaching it to our family as well. He is to dwell with his wife according to knowledge. First Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. So that means his relationship with his wife is to conform to the knowledge that is revealed in the Word of God. He is to honor her as the weaker vessel while remembering they are joint heirs together of the kingdom of God, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. 
Weaker simply refers to their comparative strength. The husband's not to expect the wife to do a man's work, but he should treat her as the weaker, not inferior. The word has no reference to being inferior, but comparatively weaker. Sure, she can open the door, but do it for her. It's part of honoring her. Don't expect her to carry in the wood or to slop the hogs. That's man's work. Remember, she is the weaker, but remember she is a joint heir together with you of the kingdom of God. And then the man is to bring up the children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The, the Greek word a little, is, reads a little different. It says, nurture them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Nurture is to bring them up with that which is necessary for their development and discipline them. Padilla identifies inflict them with some sort of loss or suffering to modify their behavior. Not a penalty for what they've done. God's not in the business of penalizing us or punishing us, but He disciplines us. The pain, loss, or suffering is no different between punishment and discipline. What is different is the objective. The objective of discipline is to modify our behavior. The objective punishment is to make us pay a penalty. So the father is to bring the children up and nurture them then in discipline and admonition. Admonition. Nuthia means counsel about avoidance or cessation of improper course or conduct to bring them into line with the Word of God. As the children of Israel were going into the land of promise, Moses delivers his final addresses to them. And he says, Therefore shall you lay up these words, uh, as he's speaking for God, these words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between thine eyes, and you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house, and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children in the land which the Lord sware unto the fathers to give unto them, in the days of heaven upon the earth. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 24 says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasten him betimes. The word hate means to deny the claim that they have upon us. Maleness is not masculine toxicity. It is biblical conformity. There's a strong movement in the media today to destroy the home and the maleness of fathers, and they are constantly using that reference to maleness toxicity or being toxic in our masculinity, and they are determined to destroy the biblical distinction between the two genders. We who know better shake our heads, and yet remain passive because of the lack of maleness being perpetuated in mainstream churches as well as in other areas of society. I've heard many Christian men speak about their appreciation of some women preachers. Most we professed Christians are willing to vote for a woman to serve in public office. And some would say, well, 
If they're qualified, well, I've got this word for you. They can't pass the physical as God makes the distinction between the two. Maleness is not toxic. It's God's design for the family, for society, for government, and certainly for the church. The male is created then to serve in that role, and that's supported by his very basic design, his biblical commission, and the qualifications that God has placed upon him. Maleness is placed in leadership and authority by God himself, but with the requirement, with the requirement to love with a self-sacrificial love that which is in conformity to God's design. Love suffers long. Love uh, is kind. Love envieth not. Love bondeth not itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave itself unseemly. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Maleness, to render due benevolence and honor, is conforming to the plan of God. His maleness requires that he understand his role and the roles and the value of those uh, over which he has been placed to govern. He must not only render to them that which is due to them, but to honor them in their God-given role of assignment that is different than his. The man should never forget that he is incomplete without the woman. Oh yeah, we can operate minus a limb, but we're handicapped to do so. And so the same would be true of the man without the woman. Maleness then is to be the instructor within the household. He is to instruct his wife. He is to bring up the children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. He is to provide discipline that is motivated by love and that is tempered by grace. True maleness is never more visible than when it provides strong leadership that recognizes uh, the submission to Christ and emulates the attitude of Christ uh, that which is produced in us by the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. There is a need today and a cry today that fathers would once again regain their maleness, for then it would be a very happy Father's Day. Several years ago, my daughter gave me a nice plaque and these words were written on the plaque. The glory of children are their fathers. The glory of children are their fathers. It's a quotation from Proverbs chapter 17, verse 6, and it identifies a truth of God. It's a reminder to us fathers that the glory, that word identifies the characteristics of the children or reflection upon the characteristics of the father. This proverb then emphasizes the influence that a child, that a father has upon the child. Those influences, whether they be good, or bad or indifferent, the child's reaction contributes to the development of the characteristics of that child. So fathers, stop trying to nurture a non-existent feminine side of your nature. God took the femininity out of the man when he took the rib out and fashioned it into a woman. Your femininity is to be in your spouse. Live out your biblical maleness and contribute to the character of those in your environment. 
the attributes of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Remember the glory of the children. The character of the children. Or the character of the fathers. But of course it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember the glory of children are their fathers. 